That music means your next hour is going to be about connection. Welcome to This Show is All About You, a show dedicated to discussing and experiencing the things we all have in common. When you and me become we and explore what it means for all of us. Here's your host, historian, writer, social commentator, and a whole lot of other things, J.D.K. Winnekin. Welcome, 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 everyone, to another episode of This Show is All About You. So happy to have you with me for the next hour as we take a look at the things that uh, we hear often a lot about in our world, but don't always get underneath the stories underneath and away from the division that is always at the surface, always seeking, of course, those things that connect us in the now and connect us over space and time. That is what this show is all about. Hence why I say it's a show that is all about you. It's also a show that's all about me. So happy to have you here with me. Thanks for taking the time. And remember, if you uh, miss any of this episode of this show is all about you or want to catch up on previous ones, you can find this as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And thank you in advance for subscribing, for leaving me a review and for sharing it with your friends and your family, whoever you think would enjoy it the most. From the outset, I want to give a thank you to this show's sponsor, Airway Science for Kids, which is a nonprofit based down in the Portland, Oregon area that provides life and career pathway opportunities to underserved youth through the exploration of aerospace careers. There are hundreds of said careers. And the way Airway Science does this is not only introducing kids to the steps they need to take to get the education and to develop those technical skills to do those careers, but they also help kids better connect with themselves, with their families, and with their communities. And if you want to know the amazing ways in which Airway Science does its work, please check out their website at airsci.org, and you will hear more about them during the breaks. Okay, so I am back after a week off. I was out last week, and then I was on a trip that I'm going to be spending today's episode talking about one angle of that. Uh, but we have a couple of weeks of things to catch up on. And so let's jump into the big items from the last week's news in the segment that I call What in the World is Going On? This is what liberation looks like as Ukraine's counteroffensive grinds on. The village of Andrivka, now just a wasteland after Ukrainian forces claim they've seized it back urging the few remaining Russian fighters to surrender or be killed. And a recorded message played from one of its surveillance drones. Capturing tiny Andrivka is a big win for Ukraine. It sits just eight miles from Bakhmut, the industrial city which was captured by Kremlin-backed mercenaries in May. Of course, the Ukraine war continues on, and now that the seasons are again changing, once again, everyone in Ukraine and around the world is watching the clock. And the big question about that clock watching is, how far can Ukraine get in its counteroffensive? Can it break Russia's lines before, not the snow arrives, but before the mud hits? Uh, everyone knows about the rough Ukrainian winters. What always prefaces those winters, though, of course, is heavy rains. And that means mud and heavy mud. The soil in Ukraine is incredibly deep. It's also incredibly rich. And once it gets muddy, it is going to be very, very difficult for uh, any major movement to happen of tanks, of trucks, even of people walking across these massive fields that make up the bulk of the counteroffensive territory there in Ukraine. 
So everybody wants to know how far is this going to go? And Bakhmut, which was uh, claimed as a major victory by Russia just a handful of weeks ago, if they lose it again, it illustrates a couple of things really clearly. First, that Russia is making no gains and all the lives that they have been spending over the last few months have all been in vain if they're going to lose that territory. And it also shows that Ukraine has the ability, if they retake Bakhmut, to reclaim territory, which is the big thing that Ukraine's Western allies, including the United States, really want to be able to see to continue justifying giving billions of dollars of equipment and other aid to Ukraine in its war effort. So as the war continues to grind on and the casualties continue to mount, this is what it's coming down to. And a lot of people ask me all the time, doesn't there come a point where you lose hundreds of thousands of soldiers. And in the case of Russia, we're, there are over 300,000 uh, Russian men have been killed in this war so far. Isn't there at some point where you just say, okay, enough is enough? Well, yes, but also oftentimes history shows that the more lives you lose, the less likely for at least a period of time you will be to give up because you do not want to have to answer for all those hundreds of thousands of lives lost that you gave up. And unfortunately, that is part of the ugliness of modern war. And so that will continue on for however long it continues on. Okay, second story for the week. It's been a year since re a revolution of sorts broke out in Iran. And a lot of people are looking back on the last year wondering, what's changed? Let's hear a little bit of a clip about that. As the anniversary of Masa Amini's death approaches, the clerics have been trying to push back. When this popular Iranian musician released a song encouraging women to take off their hijabs, he was arrested. Here in the city of Shiraz, officials tried to prevent a mother and daughter boarding the metro for not having covered their hair. It's interesting. If you take a look at all the one year since reports that have been going on, and I highly encourage you to look them up online. You can find a lot of them um, where you normally find such videos, YouTube and elsewhere. Uh, you see a lot of these types of stories. What's really changed? Of course, there was a, a period of about five or six months where the revolution really being led in universities, but in major cities all over Iran and every single province, largely by young people, young women and their supporters, had made, were seemingly making real changes, or at least showing real open defiance and showing the relative weakness of the regime to enforce its own very strict interpretation of the laws of Sharia. Now, since then, though, those last six months, things have quieted down. The government arrested a lot of people, executed a number of people for crimes against the state, and it's, a, it's an open question as to whether or not it was fear and repression or exhaustion and a lack of a clear field of where to go among these revolutionary groups that have led to this. What is clear, whatever that combination is, it hasn't gone away. There are a number of reports in a number of different cities of women openly not wearing the hijab. And actually when seeing women in the hijab, seeing women not wearing them, pulling them off in solidarity and challenging those who challenge them in public for not wearing the hijab. Others, some cities seemingly are more repressive than others, but it doesn't appear that there is much unanimity among the government in Iran on exactly how hard to crack down on these things. Now, there are a number of factors at play. 
besides domestic politics, Iran is trying to figure out to what to, to what level it wants to support Russia and Ukraine beyond the combat drones that it sends them. And of course, there's its ever-present tensions with the United States that play into this. And in fact, the third clip for today kind of branches directly off of this. You know, so we'll see what uh, we'll see what happens in Iran with these rules. But everything is not once as it was in Iran, and I think that's a good thing. So let's hear that third clip. Uh, just a few minutes ago, I had the great pleasure of speaking to seven Americans who are now free free from their imprisonment or detention in Iran, out of Iran, out of prison, and now in Doha, uh, en route back to the United States to be reunited with their loved ones. Uh, Five of the seven, of course, had been unjustly detained, imprisoned in Iran, some for years. Uh, Two others had been prevented from leaving Iran. That was Secretary of State Anthony Blinken giving a press conference earlier today about the release of those prisoners, several of which, the three of which have been identified, and they're all Iranian-Americans who've been in prison going back as far back as 2016 by the regime. And in exchange, the United States unfroze $6 billion of Iranian oil assets, part of the sanctions program that the United States has had uh, slapped on Iran for a number of years now, has been essentially freezing oil assets, the money that Iran makes off of the international uh, oil trade to prevent them from using that money to develop their nuclear program, as well as to develop other weapons programs like drones that can be sent to to Russia, but also fighter aircraft and anti-aircraft defenses and uh, spy equipment, that type of thing. So a $6 billion exchange for a handful of prisoners uh, is noteworthy. And depending on where you sit, and feeling about how we, whether or not we should be negotiating with the Iranians is going to determine whether you think this was a good idea or not. What is true is that this administration has decided that the best way to get Iran back to the bargaining table to help perhaps move them away from supporting Russia is to do things like this, to unfreeze some of that money, to get an agreement that that money will not be used for those for those nuclear programs and hopefully therefore then open up more inspection of those nuclear facilities which Iran has already agreed to do through the United Nations to make that process smoother and the hope is on part of this administration is that that will lead to a comprehensive nuclear deal with Iran that will reduce tensions so it is difficult to think that for unfreezing 6 billion dollars of assets to free five individuals, it can seem steep. And it is on one level. And so I encourage all of us to ask that question. If you're kind of undecided, not sure like me, how you feel about it, to think about what do individual lives mean? And how do we measure them against money? If it was one of our family members and I had $6 billion, I would really want to pay that out. Does that mean it should be do- have been done? I don't know. I truly am undecided. Nevertheless, that seems to be what is happening here. The United States is trying to soften the rhetoric and soften the tension with Iran from a number of directions, Russia, nuclear inspections, and also, we should also add, including its its hostile relationship with Saudi Arabia. The United States does not have the greatest relations with the Saudis currently, and their major rival in the region is Iran. So we will see what happens. But over the last couple of weeks, as you've seen, There is a lot going on in the world. So that is our recap of the news. Okay, 
So what are we going to talk about today on this show is all about you? Well, I'm going to tell you a story. I, what's one of the things I really love to do on this show is tell a story from history or tell a story from my own life and hopefully tell it in such a way that people feel that listeners like you can feel connected to that. Maybe you'll hear something that you relate to or something that maybe a perspective you haven't thought of before, maybe something you openly disagree with, but nevertheless, something that will kind of get things moving, get our minds going, get our feelings going. I want to tell a little story about that. Well, the story I want to talk about today is one from my own personal life, and it's one that literally just happened. As I said at the top of the show, I was out last week uh, because I was going on a trip. And it wasn't, uh, it was an international trip, but uh, it wasn't like overseas or anything like that. I went north of the border into Canada. Now, where I am in the Puget Sound region, you might think that I'm just going to go straight north about an hour and a half's drive or so and go to Vancouver, Canada. And I've done that trip a number of different times. And Vancouver is a great city, a truly underrated global city. But that is not where I went this time. In fact, I ended up in Toronto on the other end of Canada for the last few days, starting out, though, in Detroit, Michigan. And um, you might be wondering, why would I choose to go to Detroit and Toronto on a trip? And that has nothing to do, nothing bad to say about Detroit or Toronto as a destination. However, it's not exactly a place that, unless you're going there for business or you have family there, that you might be choosing to go to for a vacation, which is essentially what I was doing. Well, in order to explain this, I kind of got, got to give you a little bit of background. And it starts out with a very, very poignant uh, moment in my life. Almost exactly nine years ago, one of my closest friends, my friend Matt, um, who I had known since I was in college back in 1993 is when I met him. And we became very, very good friends uh, working as camp counselors together in the mountains of Southern California. And Matt was a school teacher and a very good school teacher. He taught younger kids and he was one of the most gifted teachers I'd ever seen and ever met in my life. Nine years ago, uh, Matt passed away suddenly. And it was a shock and it was devastating to me and to so many other people. And a group of us who had met at camp, there were four of us who were particularly tight as a group, uh, were really rocked by this, the remaining three. And one of them uh, is a, my good friend and a friend of this show, uh, Seth Mormon. He's come on a couple of times. He's also the host of the Athletica obscura podcast, which you should check out wherever you get your podcasts. It's interesting, obscure stories from sports, uh, but it's about a lot more than that. So you should check that out. But uh, Seth and I were really rocked by this. And one of the reasons why we were was because we had not spoken to Matt in quite some time. And back then, nine years ago, we were in our early 40s. And so we'd seen a good amount of life, uh, but hadn't really started going through what we're noticing we're starting to go through now that more and more as time goes by, more and more friends pass away. Things happen. This was kind of the first big one of, of those. And so Matt, uh, when Matt passed away, Seth and I spent a lot of time in conversation. And one of the things that we realized was we just couldn't assume that the time was there. It's that lifelong lesson that all of us learn in some way, shape or form usually the hard way through some sort of loss, some surprise loss, that, that time is precious and there is no guaranteed tomorrow for any of us. 
And that's kind of where Seth and I landed. We were kind of, you know, we kind of just assumed, you know, you're connected with each other. You know, you're tight. You don't worry about talking all the time and you pick up where you left off. And those, if you have a, a friendship like that, you know what I'm talking about because you have separate lives. And, and Matt lived in Arizona at the time and I was in the Northwest and Seth was in Southern California. And so it was too late once Matt was gone to go back and spend more time with him and to be connected with him earlier. And of course, had we known it was going to happen, we would have reconnected with him much earlier. So Seth and I did what we could do. And that was, we made a commitment to one another from that point on that we were not going to assume that we were just going to have the time and we could leave things open-ended. And so through a course of a number of different conversations, we landed on this idea that at least once a year, we would get together and we would do a handful of days doing something that we really enjoyed. And Seth and I enjoy a lot of different things. We enjoy music. We enjoy movies. We enjoy TV. We enjoy time with friends. We enjoy traveling. But what we truly enjoy is a shared love of major league sports. <laughs> and so we are big sports fans, and we love to go to games of all different types of, of, of sports, particularly baseball. We love to go to new stadiums. We love to do that kind of thing. So we just decided once a year, we were going to get together and do a series of sporting events together as a way of making sure we don't just assume we have all the time in the world, but we actually act on that. And so we've done a number of these trips in the nine years since Matt passed away. Sometimes Seth comes up to visit me in the Puget Sound. Other times I go down to visit him in Southern California and every, and we go do a bunch of different stuff. And other times we go on longer trips. And this past trip that I just got back from yesterday was one of those trips, a little further afield. So what I'd like to do is tell you about that on the other end of this, this break and a few things that kind of came out of it as we talk about more and more about transitions in life. And this is sort of the third chapter of the last few episodes of that. So come on back on this show is all about you and we'll continue. See you in a minute. I'm Julia Cannell, Executive Director of Airway Science for Kids. We sponsor this show is all about you because it exemplifies our core values, connectivity, communication, emotional intelligence, positivity, respect, and the power of possibility. Help us introduce historically excluded youth to all of these through the wonder and promise of aviation and aerospace careers. Airway Science for Kids, providing aerospace to all. Visit airsci.org to learn more and to contribute your talents. Welcome back, everyone, to this show is all about you. I am your host, J.D.K. Winnikin, and I am talking about a sports trip that I just took last week. Uh, it's why I wasn't here last week. And uh, I took it with a good friend of mine, Seth Mormon, kind of our big pickup from uh, the sad and, and sudden passing of a very close mutual friend nine years ago, our friend Matt, down in Arizona. And we picked up the the lesson from that that we did not want to assume that we would have all the time in the world to still connect with one another and spend time with one another. And we, we wanted to honor Matt and, and then of course honor our own friendship by following through on a commitment to every year getting together and going on a trip and uh, doing a, a number of different things, particularly things we enjoy. And Seth and I enjoy sports immensely, particularly uh, major league baseball, but also uh, NFL football. We enjoy hockey. Uh, we enjoy soccer and we also have a very interesting shared interest, and Seth's interest in this goes back longer than mine has, 
in the Canadian Football League, <laughs> the CFL. And uh, so every year we figure out some combination of those sports based on the schedules that are out at the time whenever we decide to take the trip. Um, and we do a, a number of those uh, over the course of a few days. Some of our trips have been short, like three days. Others have been longer, like six, like this last one. And a uh, few of them have involved going up to Vancouver, BC, and seeing the BC Lions, the team from the Canadian Football League that is up north of the border. And uh, Seth introduced me to that. I became very interested in it myself. And so it's something that we like to do from time to time. Now, just to give you a little bit of background on the trip that we just took, uh, Seth and I are trying over the course of our lives to visit as many Major League Baseball stadiums as possible. And after this trip, I think we are at 18 and 19, respectively. I think he's at 18 out of the 30, and I'm at 19 out of the 30. And we're, we're kind of picking them off as we go here and there um, as much as we can. And then, of course, we go to games on our own when we can. So this year, when we were put planning this whole thing, and they usually happen in September, it's right around the time when Matt passed away, end of August, and then also a time around Matt's birthday, which is in the middle of the month, and mine, which is earlier in September. It's just sort of fallen there. We plan these trips. So this time around, Seth and I asked each other, like, where are these, where are these places that we could go? You know, uh, where, where are some baseball stadiums we could go to that uh, we haven't been to before? And a couple of them that were up there were Detroit, Comerica Park, where the Detroit Tigers play, a team that I've always kind of liked, going back to my deep interest in the Magnum PI television series. And, you know, uh, Tom Selleck played Thomas Magnum. He was from Detroit, always wore a Tigers hat. He was kind of a hero for me growing up. So I've always kind of had a soft spot for the Detroit Tigers, but never seen them play in person. And Seth also had wanted to see them in person. So we kind of thought that might be one. Another place we wanted to go and had always wanted to go was to Toronto to go to Rogers Center to its stadium, which used to be known as Sky Dome. And when it opened 25, 30 years ago, it was the first retractable roof stadium in the world. And it was kind of seen as one of the technological wonders of the world. And we'd always wanted to go there. And I had always wanted to visit Toronto because I've heard it's an amazing city. So those things were out there and as possibilities. But what sealed the deal was uh, Seth has a longstanding friendship with a man named Larry Crawford. And Larry Crawford is was a defensive back for the BC Lions, who I just mentioned a little minute ago. The BC Lions back in the 80s. And not only was he a defensive back and a punt returner, for them, but he was one of the best to ever play in the Canadian Football League. Well, what sealed the deal for us to go to Detroit and Toronto was the fact that when Larry Crawford found out earlier this year that he was being inducted into the Canadian Football Hall of Fame, which happens to be in Hamilton, Ontario, which is a city outside, just outside the major Toronto metropolitan area. In fact, it's kind of part of it, but it's about 43, 45, 50 miles away from Toronto proper. But it's right there. And he was being inducted into that. And um, and Seth has been friends with him for a very long time. And also, the Hall of Fame happens to be in the stadium in Hamilton for Hamilton's Canadian Football League team, the Hamilton Tiger Cats. And so a plot was born. We took a look at what could be going on around the time of the induction ceremony, and then the, the game the next day, kind of to honor them. They called it the Hall of Fame game. And as it turned out, both the Blue Jays and the Detroit Tigers were at home in the same stretch of time 
we could do all of those games. And so we laid it out that we would fly into Detroit. We met in Denver on a flight last week. We flew together to Detroit. And we the centerpiece of that was we went to a Detroit Tigers baseball game. And it was all the things that we had always hoped it would be. The park was really nice. The old Tiger Stadium they tore down a number of years ago. That's the, the iconic one, one of the great old ballparks in baseball. But we also found out that it was actually the area you could still go to. So we walked down there at one point um, on the trip, and we found the old field that the city of Detroit has converted into a baseball field for a local community college team. But it's also kind of a, a neighborhood project to build up a lot of different uh, housing areas and uh, entertainment shops, an entertainment district around it. And it's all built on the same site. The same dimensions of the ball field are the same and the the, the the flagpole that was in the old Tiger Stadium going back to 1912 uh, is still there. So we saw that, saw the field, didn't get to go out on it, but we got to sort of be in the spot of that. And we also explored a number of old buildings in Detroit. We had what I think in, is the leader in the clubhouse in our lives for the best chili dogs and chili fries he and I have ever had in our life at uh, Lafitte Coney Island in Detroit. That's some really good stuff. And um, we also met some really, really interesting, very kind people in Detroit, a city that has struggled quite a bit in the last couple of decades. It is a so-called Rust Belt city because of the decline of American manufacturing, but they've done a lot of work to rebuild and refurbish the downtown area in Detroit into a place that people want to go to uh, that has uh, shops and restaurants and activities. It's built around the local sports teams, the Detroit Tigers and the Detroit Lions of the National Football League and the Detroit Red Wings and Pistons of the NHL and the NBA who play in, arena, in an arena right out downtown. So all those locations are all together like that, which is a common thing in North American cities these days as they're building new, new uh, stadiums and arenas to put shopping districts, residential districts around it to kind of revitalize and Detroit has done more of that than almost any other city Seth and I have ever been in. And so we actually really enjoyed it uh, quite a bit, more so than I'm not sure we thought we wouldn't enjoy it, but it was really uh, quite fascinating. We got we, we enjoyed our time quite a bit. And at Tiger Stadium, they had some pretty amazing stuff there. In particular, we, I mean, we got cheap seats. We always get cheap seats and sit behind home plate so we can get a good view of the game and good view of the ballpark and and he and I love to explore all the different amenities that ballparks have. And Detroit's Comerica Park has a lot of them. But one of the things that they do have is, is some of their seats on the first level are um, not the ones right up on the field, but about halfway up all the way to the first concourse are a series of padded like Adirondack chairs with a lot of space in front of your feet and a little end table between the chairs to put your stuff on. Now, you might be wondering how we got into these seats. Um I don't think it's going to be breaking any confidentiality to say that the Tigers aren't very good this year. And so the crowd wasn't huge. And so we watched for a few innings upstairs and then we just took it upon ourselves to sit in some of the chairs closest to the concourse for as long as we could. And as long as we could ended up being about four innings of that nine inning game. And we immensely enjoyed it. Perhaps the best baseball seats we've ever sat in, in terms of comfort and what you could see and all that in our lives. But most impressive were the people. People in Detroit were thrilled that we were there. They loved hearing the story of what we were doing. They loved hearing about the roots of it with the loss of our friend Matt and our commitment to get together once a year. 
And, and of course, we tried a whole bunch of other stuff. Detroit-style pizza. Food is a big thing. Seth and I enjoy that, too. Uh, and just walking around and exploring the city. We like to get a feel of that city. So from there, we got up early um, one morning and got across the border, which was its own adventure. Legally, we got across the border, by the way, into Canada. You go south into Windsor, Canada from Detroit, if you've never been there. And uh, we got in and we ended up taking a train, a four-hour train ride from Windsor to Toronto. And uh, the train ride was interesting, was fun to see that part of the part of the country I'd never seen before. And we were a little tired, so we slept a little bit. But by the time we got to Toronto, we were ready for the next adventure. And Toronto is like a combination of Vancouver and New York City all in one. And it feels way bigger in some ways than both. Even though Seth and I didn't see a whole, a huge amount of the city, we saw quite a bit of at least in the downtown area. We went to um, one of the big famous markets there uh, for lunch one day and we walked the city streets. But that night we went to, the first night we were there, we went to Blue Jays game, which was incredibly fun. It was the first time Seth and I sat in our seats and didn't move for an entire game. We Wanted to take in the whole thing and uh, enjoyed the game immensely. The people in Toronto are very, very passionate about their baseball team. And you can see why. It's it's a fascinating place to watch a game. It's a good team. And the vibe around them in the city is palpable. So we did that. And then we went to uh, the next night. We went to the Hall of Fame uh, induction ceremony for Seth's friend, Larry, which uh, it's a very funny story, um, what happened there. But it I'll save that for another time because I don't have Seth's permission to tell it yet. But nevertheless, we ended up in a room of about 150 people, um, many Canadian Football League uh, executives and former and previous Hall of Famers, and their families were there for this induction ceremony. And so we ended up in this kind of small, intimate event that we bought tickets for that were available online. So we thought it was going to be bigger. It turned out to be smaller. And Let's just say we thought we were going to kind of a fan event. And so we weren't nearly as nicely dressed as everybody else was. <laughs> we, in fact, we looked like we were going to a football game. So we kind of felt a little bit out of place, but everybody kind of laughed about that. And Larry was very happy to have his friend uh, Seth there for the event. And I enjoyed it immensely and met, met some pretty famous people in Canadian life. And then the next day we drove back down from Toronto and went to the Hamilton Tiger Cats uh, football game against the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. And that was a lot of fun. The home team won, which is always exciting. And that was to the advantage of the BC Lions, the CFL team that Seth and I root for. And along the way, we did all the things that we like to do. We explored the city. We were staying in an Airbnb on the 37th floor of a residential high rise right in downtown Toronto next to the stadium, uh, the Rogers Center, which was absolutely fabulous. And we found a lot of great places to eat. We, of course, had poutine because that's what you do when you're in Canada. And they make it very good up there, particularly at Smokes, which is where we went. And then yesterday, we got up early and we flew home. Well, at least I flew back here to the Puget Sound. Seth had to fly for work. So he ended up, he's taking a more circuitous route to get home to uh, Southern California later this week. So that was the trip. And... Of course, those are the activities that Seth and I do. The glue of that, though, I mean, those are kind of the bench, the, the cornerstones, the benchmarks of the, of, the, of the trip. But really what the trip is about is our connection. 
Seth and I have been friends for over 30 years, actually 30 years exactly this past summer when we first met up at camp where we met Matt. And we have always shared a very close connection, a close bond over a lot of things, very shared history. We're both pastor's kids. Our, our dads knew one another in seminary. And so we had that common experience. We worked together at camp, had that common experience. Um, and big sports fans and music fans, we have that. So we've always been close since day one. And really what we're doing is being intentional about keeping our connection, not surviving because it'll survive, it'll thrive, but to, to keep building on it, to keep making it better, to keep putting more memory coins in the jar, if you will, more deposits into the bank of our relationship, if you will. Pick your metaphor because all of them work. But that's why we do it. And so the, the, while the benchmarks and the, the signposts are all the events, really what the trips are about is everything that's in between, is the time we spend talking. And we talk not just about sports, but we talk about life. We talk about what's going on with each of us. We talk about what's going on, not just in our families and in our relationships, but what's going on in our heads, what's going on in our hearts, what's going on in our emotional, physical, spiritual, uh, intellectual lives. And there's a lot of vibrancy for both of us in those areas. We talk about um, we talk about a lot of the things that we don't necessarily share with a lot of other people. Uh, not because we're afraid to share them, but those are the types of things that not everybody earns the right in life to really know about. And, and Seth and I have long since crossed over to the point where we have any concerns about sharing those types of things with each other. And so we spend a lot of time talking and a lot of time reflecting and a lot of time looking back and laughing at things and, and remarking on how in some ways we've changed immensely over time and other ways we haven't at all. And I think it's a fair measure to say that as more time goes by, a lot of the good things that we had hoped we would each hold on to, we have, and a lot of the things that we were hoping we would cast off at some point we have as well. And so it's kind of a time to check in. It's kind of a time to spend uninterrupted time, intentional time with one another, which we have both experienced in this relationship as being absolutely vital, not just to keeping a friendship going, but to really living life in a way that is meaningful, rewarding, and provides perspective on things much larger than just the relationship at hand. Honestly, I think that's on some level, what we human beings are designed to do for one another in this life is to help one another take those steps in those directions, help each other leave the bad stuff behind as much as possible and confront tough stuff when it happens together with support and to really build on the positives and to continue to grow with one another and to learn and to walk side by side, even if side by side isn't always very literally, you know, Seth and I live far apart, so we don't get a lot of literal time together to walk side by side, but we sure do get the most out of it in those times where we do have that side by side walking shoulder to shoulder. And the rest of the time we walk it in a way that's just as real, continuing to connect with one another and support one another and, and see what's going on with one another. So, so in that sense, this trip was just as rewarding as all the other ones have been. In the context of this show and what I do and all the things that I'm doing in life now, it was also 
It also brought me a whole lot of other insights and lessons and perspectives that go uh, go beyond just the things that I have been talking about. It's one of the great things about time with Seth is we each say things, do things, and have enough that we're different on that it gives each of us a broader series of things to consider as we grow and as we move forward in the next steps of our lives till we see each other again. And that happened quite a bit on this trip for both of us, something that we both openly acknowledged when we parted ways at the Toronto Pearson International Airport early yesterday morning. And when we come back from our second break on this show is all about you, I'll tell you about some of those larger things that that we each picked up on and some thoughts that I have and what that means for this period of transition in my life and maybe periods of transition that might be going on in yours. So come on back here in just a second on this show is all about you. Kids never have trouble dreaming about their future. The challenge is providing them the resources and opportunities to reach them. This is especially true from historically underserved communities. Fortunately, there's an organization that can help those dreams become reality. Airway Science for Kids helps underserved youth develop life and career pathways through exploration of aviation and aerospace. Using in-person and virtual programs, along with partnerships with companies, educational institutions, community health providers, and other resources, Airway Science for Kids helps students not only find their dream careers, but also learn how to better advocate for themselves and connect more effectively with their families, peers, and communities. To find out more, visit airsci.org. That's A-I-R-S-C-I.org. Or email info at airsci.org. Airway Science for Kids. Providing aerospace for all. Welcome back, everyone, to This Show is All About You. I'm your host, J.D.K. Winnikin. We're talking about uh, this larger period of transition going on uh, in my life, but specifically talking about the lessons that came about from my trip that just finished yesterday with my good buddy, Seth Mormon, a sports trip to uh, Detroit and Toronto, where we saw baseball, we saw Canadian Football League football, we saw a induction ceremony for the Canadian Football League Hall of Fame for a friend of Seth's who was one of those Hall of Famers, Larry Crawford. You should look him up on YouTube. He's a pretty incredible player. Um, But really, it's the things that really last beyond that. You know, it's funny, Seth and I spent some time on this trip trying to remember some of the, we had lots of memories of these trips, but we don't, can't always remember which ones they happened on. Like, was it that one, that trip or was it that trip? And that's a really good problem to have because that means you're doing a lot of really fun trips in a lot of really fun ways and you can't keep all of them straight. What was really important is the experiences themselves, not the time frame. Uh, but really what I want to finish up this episode about is talking about some of the larger insights that came out of this. You know, Seth and I are in big transitions in our own way in in life. Both of Seth's uh, girls are now out of high school and are building their lives. One is finishing cosmetology school. One is headed off to college. And so he, Seth and his wife, Jill, are looking at that reality. And that's a, that's a transition. Uh, Seth's recently had a big career change and it's going very well. And yet that's a transition. 
I'm always doing something. As Seth and others point out, I'm trying to get a book published. I'm doing uh, this podcast. I'm doing podcasts with my friend Tani Santabria, breaking up with our BS. And uh, we're writing a book together, she and I, on that. And, oh, there's even more. I'm, I'm totally forgetting things. Oh, yes, I'm a, a certified human potential coach. <laughs> so there's all these things. And so sometimes things like feel like they're always transitioning for me. And I, I like that. I like the experience of flow and change and not always knowing what's coming. Um, I like having my, my freedom to be flexible and to go to different places and do different things. Like in the middle of the year, go on a sports trip, you know, at a time when most people aren't going on trips. I like to do all those things. So it's this, this period of transition and what happens, at least in my case, and this is where I will stop being brave enough to speak for Seth, but for me, alone. What I'm noticing now, I've turned 50 as listeners of this show know. And so I'm kind of looking at things from that perspective. Um, I'm starting to really focus on learn and accept what are the larger truisms that I just take as reality and the things that are most important to me. And I saw a few things on this trip that underscored some of that. And I'll get to as many of them as I can in this last segment. But uh, one of them started with a really interesting observation that Seth had early on in our visit to Toronto. So we arrived at Toronto, bleary-eyed. We've been up really early. We rode a train. We had to do a whole lot of moving around the city to, to get to our Airbnb and get secured for that and then to secure a car and all that. So it was a very busy first day. And we're walking through this incredibly busy city. Just to give you an idea of how big Toronto is, we sat down and did the math, or more accurately, Seth did. Uh, almost one in five Canadians live in the greater Toronto area. <laughs> so, you know, the majority of Canadians live within 100 miles of the U.S. border, but the one out of almost five live in Toronto, Hamilton, the surrounding areas there. And so it's a pretty big area, big place. And the downtown looks like you're walking around New York City, a much safer and cleaner and friendlier version of New York City. And I say that as somebody who loves New York City. Uh, but it was definitely remarkable. But at one point, we're walking through the city and we're, you know, there's traffic, there's cars, there's lots of people on the road. It's the middle of the week. And so it's the, you know, it's the business financial district downtown. So there's all this movement going on that you normally would see. And Seth had, had this feeling. He was like, there's something that's different about what's going on here. And then finally, he literally figured it out and he stopped cold. And he put his hand out to me like I thought he was trying to stop me from like stepping in dog poo or walking into traffic. But he puts his arm out and he goes, I got it. Have you noticed? No one is honking their horn. And we stopped and we literally stood there in the middle of this major street, Front Street in Toronto, for those of you who know the city, which is a major thoroughfare. We're listening, and there's traffic jammed up everywhere and no one's honking. Like, you know, you think the ubiquitous horn sounds of New York City are just going constantly, right? Horns, beep, 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 people yelling at each other, right? Angry traffic. That wasn't happening in Toronto. And it, not only did that turn out to be true for that moment, but almost for the entire trip, we didn't hear anybody honking their horns. Even at night when it got busy on weekend nights, you didn't hear that either. <laughs> we were just amazed by this. It got to the point where I was joking to him and a few other friends that uh, it's, is it illegal to honk 
in Toronto? Can you be fined for that? Is that why people don't do it? Or is this really one of those examples of what has become the big Canadian stereotype in that they're just incredibly polite? Well, we saw that politeness everywhere. You know, at the ball games we'd go to, people were so nice when they walked by you, you know, to get out of the aisle to go get, you know, refreshments or go to the restroom. They apologized profusely, both when they left and when they came back. Now, that doesn't always happen in the States, but sometimes it does. But one of the other things we noticed is, for the most part, fans of these sporting events weren't screaming at players on the field when they made mistakes. They weren't hollering obscenities. They weren't yelling at each other. We got some good-natured ribbing from other fans, but there was actually – they actually fans were interested in talking to us, you know, um, because we'd come up from the States. Canadian Football League fans in particular were mystified that there are any Americans who are interested in Canadian football. And so they enjoyed talking with us. And so there was a curiosity that um, and an openness and a, a willingness to connect and be friendly and that assumption from Canadians that just struck Seth and I as really endearing, uh, really a nice breath of fresh air from a lot of our sports experiences in the States and outside of sports. And also, to a certain degree, a little bit, um, I won't say it's not off-putting, but it's a little weird. Um, or just it feels that way. Now, that has everything to do with me. It has nothing to do with those Canadians. Those individual Canadians are just being who they are and acting that way. And you know what? They, they generally, as a rule, they seem to default towards kindness and courtesy. It's something that... Uh, Tawny and I talk about quite a bit on our show is, is the importance of courtesy, even amidst disagreement, um, and even um, between strangers, uh, not always necessarily needing to be overtly friendly or to sacrifice one's own position, but to be courteous. And that is a thing in Canada. And it got me thinking, and Seth and I talked a little bit about it, but this is sort of where I kind of want to go for the remainder of the time here. It got me thinking about Okay, this is a country, Toronto, uh, a city, Toronto, a country, Canada, that have so many things in common with the United States. I mean, there's a lot of crossover. Canadian sports fans are huge Major League Baseball fans, which is a predominantly American league. Uh, they're big fans of the National Football League, even though there is no, there are no NFL teams in Canada. Uh, Canadian fans love American football. And it goes on and on and on. And, of course, there's a shared language um, with some differences. Um, there's a shared um, economic system, shared political systems, even though those have their differences. And yet some of the most profound things, particularly right now, that Seth and I noticed had to do with that friendliness. And it got me thinking on my long flight back yesterday from Toronto, nonstop flight, thinking about, well, how does all that work? How is it that on in Canada, Toronto and elsewhere, they lean in on the side, on the air on the side of kindness and courtesy and friendliness? And more than so, at least the common perception in the United States is that we do that less and less. That right now, American social rhetoric um, interaction has a lot to do with more hostility and difference a lack of courtesy to outright rudeness and hostility. Uh, why the two differences? Now, I want to be careful because both of those are both stereotypes of Canadians and Americans, if we say that's true across the board. 
because there are plenty of Canadians, and we saw a few, who were very, very cranky, <laughs> very, very angry, not all that friendly. And there are plenty of Americans who lead with kindness and lead with friendliness and say, excuse me and sorry when they walk past you, you know, trying to get to the bathroom at a, at a sporting event. So, but generally speaking, the honking thing is really what got me. And it got me thinking about where, where are the things that we have in common as humans and what are the things that culturally we just choose over time to emphasize. And in Canada, there seems to be more of a cultural embrace of courtesy and friendliness and that lack of whatever is behind a lot of honking on the streets, lack of, lack of impatience, um, whatever it might be, or just an overt politeness. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that's always a good thing, particularly if people are feeling that angst and they're just bottling it up. It's probably not the best thing. But really, in the end, what I'm thinking about, particularly as I go through this transition that I'm in in life right now, is, man, we may have there, – there's a nature versus nurture relationship to this on both sides of the border. Now, we all have in our nature, we are designed to connect. Tani and I talk about that a lot on our show as well. We're designed to connect. We draw energy in, from the connection that we have with other people. We're social creatures. We, don't, we can't stand on our own. Um, and be healthy and be happy and grow. We need other people to be with, to spend time with, and of course, other people to bounce off of, to disagree with, to differentiate ourselves from, to learn how to navigate life in civilization is kind of the nature versus nurture thing. We have the nature of needing connection. We also have the nature of being competitive and looking out for ourselves. And so the societal systems, the culture, all the expressions of religion and spirituality all seemingly work together to try and find some sort of set of combinations that will allow us as humans to be ourselves and to continue to grow and build a society around us in which people can function and maneuver their way in that individual growth in ways that does not destroy said civilization. Now, I might be making too much out of Canadians not honking on the streets of Toronto, but maybe that's why it's such an illustrative example to me and why it's standing out to me so much. Because that's not just a bunch of individual um, Canadians just choosing constantly, consciously, intentionally every moment not to honk. That's something that has developed over time. That is something that has become more and more of a shared understanding to the point that they may not even be fully aware of all of that. I don't know the answers to all that. Same thing could be said of all the honking and aggression and <laughs> road rage that you can see in New York City and elsewhere, that those are choices. And it, it shows me once again the ability that we each have as individual human beings to take a look at how we are framing our lives within ourselves and with other people and to make choices about how we want to be. And if enough people make choices that they want to be kind and lead, to, lead, lead with courtesy and curiosity, over time, that can really develop a larger cultural sensibility that is just simply taken as the norm. And what we see with the honking thing in Canada and the really honking thing in the United States is the, the accumulation of said individual choices into that larger accepted norm in both sides. But it underscores again 
that for all the battles we have over culture, for all the things we talk about and debate, and there's, there's value in some of those debates, not all, but some of them, we can sometimes lose sight of the fact that culture is not a static thing. It is constantly changing. It is constantly open for reassessment. It is constantly open to be revised depending on a whole bunch of people's individual intentional choices on how to behave for themselves, towards themselves, and towards others. And the more certain choices get made by more and more people, the more it becomes the quote-unquote norm in those places. It is the norm in Toronto for people not to honk at each other in really bad traffic and for people to wait for um, the crosswalk. They do that in Canada, a lot more so than the U.S. There's a sense of that. And it's not about whether you know, it's good to always follow the rules or not. What it is about, seems to me, is for all the battles that we have about culture, in the end, us choosing to be individually and more and more of us together, choosing to be a certain way will change the culture of just about anything for good or for bad. And it's something that I'm thinking about a lot in a lot of areas beyond just proper traffic behavior. But it was something that came out of this trip I had with my friend Seth that I hope you enjoyed hearing about this week that I thought is really going to stick with me for some time. I'm going to spend some time thinking about it. So I'll probably have more thoughts to share on it next week. And so I'll be sure to do that. So, and of course, if you have any thoughts on this, I really encourage you to find me at my website, wordsbyjbk.com. You can reach out to me there. You can also find me on social media at Facebook, Instagram, and on the X. Just look up my last name, W-Y-N-E-K-E-N, and you'll find me rather easily. Love to hear your thoughts on that. Maybe similar stories that we can share on an upcoming episode. And um, whatever the case may be, I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of This Show is All About You. And I certainly enjoyed bringing it to you. So there are a number of people I need to thank for this episode. And every episode of This Show is All About You. So I need to thank uh, Hubbard Radio Seattle, which uh, produces and distributes This Show is All About You. I'd like to thank my uh, my in-studio producer and editor and mix master, uh, Eric Ryder, for all of his work. Thanks, Eric, as always. I also like to thank Dave Nelson of Lens Group Media for producing the original music for this show is all about you. I have a number of people that I like to thank uh, every week for the high quality life that I have. And I'm running out of time, so I can't name all of them. But I want to make sure I thank this week that I thank Seth Mormon, that I thank Julia Cannell, uh, and that I thank all the people of Canada and also of Detroit for really showing me some really important lessons as well as a really good time on my most recent trip. So I hope you all enjoyed that. And as always, uh, let's finish this episode with an original haiku and it's sports related because why not? When it's a curveball, see it, wait on it, and then swing for the fences. Chins up everyone. <laughs>